This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We all certainly know about the uh, opioid crisis and uh, just how it's gone from, uh, you know, something that you heard about that some people suffered from to uh, virtually everybody now has some sort of story on this. Uh, This afternoon at Queen's Park, a bill will be debated on the crackdown of illegal opioid production machines. These are the things I think that stamp out the pills. Uh, The bill would enforce fines and imprisonment for anyone illegally possessing or using these sorts of machines. To talk more about all of this, Michael Harris is with us, MPP Kitchener Conestoga, on the line with us now. Michael, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Exactly what do you mean by these machines? What are we talking about here? Well, uh, Scott, thanks for having me to discuss, uh, frankly, a a very important topic that's uh, impacting communities right across our country. Look, um, the opiate fentanyl crisis has claimed the lives of about 412 Ontarians uh, in the first six months of this year alone. That's roughly two people a day in Ontario lose their lives to an overdose of opiates, of course. Um, there's no silver bullet here, Scott, to adequately address the breadth of this crisis. Uh, so an array of firm measures need to be taken to remove these illicit uh, counterfeit pills from our streets. You've got two sides to this issue. You've got the uh, you know, prescribed opiates that are being diverted to the street um, for pain relief, of course. And then you've got these uh, illegal counterfeit pills uh, that are being replicated to look like a Xanax, a Percocet, an ecstasy. Um, and they're being manufactured in people's basements, uh, organized crime, drug dealers, the real scum of the earth here, Scott. And they're using a pill press to manufacture uh, pills. In fact, um, one gram of fentanyl can make roughly about a million counterfeit pills and they'll go from anywhere between 20 and 40 bucks maybe even higher on the street and so there's no reason why you know you need to have a pill press in your basement if you are a pharmacist that's one thing uh but uh my bill the illegal pill press act would make it an offense to possess uh, a press uh is there any way to tell the difference between these counterfeit drugs and the real drugs there is not in fact you can actually buy dyes uh, to mimic identically uh, what a branded pharmaceutical looks like. Even the pigmentation, uh, there are places you can go on the Internet. In fact, I believe Vancouver, there's a, a business that sells these and tells you exactly how much pigmentation to put into it to actually look exactly uh, how, like how is How is that legal? Why would you be allowed to sell a pigmentation that is, that look, to, to make a replica? I mean, what, what, you what, can, what, because what would be the purpose? Sorry, well, what would be the purpose of this? Like, why, would, why is this allowed to happen? Well, there are, you can buy dyes. You can go on the Internet right now. If you go to Kijiji for pill press, you can buy one right here in Ontario. In fact, you can, you can ship them from China, uh, and they'll guarantee even a shipment of fentanyl. I know you'll talk with uh, Layla next, uh, and uh, she's a young teenager who experienced uh, a counterfeit uh, Percocet, thinking that it was an actual legitimate pill, but in fact it turned out it was a counterfeit, and it was laced with fentanyl. Of course, they laced these with fentanyl to increase their margins, um, and uh, you know, addicts have no idea because they look exactly like the real thing. In fact, that's what's killing a lot of these unsuspecting teens. They go to a party for the first time. They may take an ecstasy or what have you, and uh, one half of it might be uh, okay, but the other half uh, could be laced with carfentanil, and you're dead. 
Uh, so you, you talked about being able to get these machines online. Where do they come from? Where do they originate? And if there's that, if you can get them that readily now, is the market not saturated? Um, uh, how do you get rid of these things? Yeah, we used to be, I think uh, Canada, in fact, has been a haven for the importation of pill presses because we didn't really have anything on the books. Are there other countries that have laws on the books on this stuff? Uh, well, Alberta is the only province. Uh, the United States, I believe, is tough on these, of course, but, uh, you know, they're being shipped in from China. In fact, some of them can be manufactured here using parts. Uh, uh, the federal government realized the impact that these pill presses are having on this issue. They've introduced C30, Bill C37 that makes it, uh, you know, illegal to import these uh, pill presses if you're not registered, uh, registered pharmacist or a pharmaceutical company. Uh, but, hey, we all know things get in through the border that shouldn't. And uh, my bill talks about the possession that would allow law enforcement uh, the ability to access a warrant. I've heard from law uh, enforcement officials that when they're doing surveillance, they can literally hear the pill press in the background churning out pills. And so this would give uh, them the grounds to go to a judge, access a warrant, uh, go into the site and um, you know, seize this pill press uh, and instantly be able to lay charges uh, that would send people to jail. This would act hopefully as a deterrent but it also will give law enforcement the tools they need to get these off the streets because I'm telling you, it's, we're talking about in Alberta, there was a drug bust in Edmonton, almost 600,000 pills, Scott. 600,000 pills were confiscated, and they need these pill presses to manufacture them. Uh, that being said, what are the chances of getting uh, now just uh, pill presses go up on the black market? Do they just come in from other sources? Or uh, dealers use other methods to deliver their product rather than a pill? Yeah, they are. I mean, look, they are selling fentanyl in, uh, you know, powdered formulations. Uh, but uh, again, um, you know, there is a market out there for party drugs. And, uh, and you know, if they're buying ecstasy, uh, this is where, you know, drug dealers are, you know, manufacturing these pills, um, you know, because there's a market for them. You know, I don't think that uh, for the most part, and, you know, I'm not the one to answer this perhaps best, but, uh, you know, Teenagers may be more comfortable taking a pill thinking it's an ecstasy for a, a good night, but they wouldn't damp, dare, uh, you know, buy a baggie of fentanyl. Like, mm. there's a big difference there, yeah. right? So, no, I hear you. Uh, um, look, we just want to give tools to law enforcement to crack down on these things. Again, uh, sending folks right to jail is the first step here on this. Six months for the first offense. Second uh, would be a year. Third, two years with the financial penalty. Of course, the financial penalty is just a cost of doing business for these dealers. There's a significant amount of money involved here. Yeah. Uh, but look, give law enforcement the tools they can go in, because right now there's nothing on the book, Scott. If they hear these pounding away in the background, there's nothing they can do about them. So how, what's, fee- what's the feedback on this? What's the response been? Yeah, you know what, uh, look, the uh, New Democrats uh, are uh, firmly behind me on this one. They're going to support it. In fact, the NDP government of Alberta moved forward on a private member's bill and made it law out west just recently, so I'm thankful for their support. Uh, The government has been wavering. Uh, In fact, the health minister said that this is oversimplistic. It's not going to solve our problem. Of course, he's right. This isn't the silver bullet that will address this issue head-on, but it gives... 
Uh, it's an added tool in the toolbox. It's like my colleague Vic Fidelli brought the Patch for Patch program in. That seems to be working to help uh, get, uh, you know, what prescribed fe- uh, fentanyl patches off the street and out of the black market. So we need, and of course I'm limited with the tools that I have as a private member. Of course we can't put anything forward that costs money, but here's something uh, quick and easy that we can give uh, law enforcement the tools to crack down on these things. And so I'm disappointed about the government's response, but hey, we're going to look forward to the debate this afternoon. We'll see where things go. Uh, what about BC's position on this? What, have, have they uh, have they any laws similar to what you're talking about? Yeah, I believe there is something in the works uh, or have been put forward. There's nothing that's been law, but of course, this problem is moving westward. I mean, like I said, I've talked to RCMP and they're telling me how, you know, you can literally, again, buy a dye uh, to, to make it, uh, to manufacture a pill that looks exactly like an old Oxycontin pill or an ecstasy or a Percocet. Uh, you know, the pigmentation, like you can, it's a one-stop shop out there. Uh, but really, you know, again, law enforcement has no tools to actually deal with this. Uh, but there's a market clearly for for this. Uh, drug dealers are taking advantage of the weak laws that we have on the books, and I'm moving forward with something that will deal with this hopefully. Uh, and if we can remove Scott, you know what, or save one life, one innocent teenager. You know, I read in the paper all the time. A 14-year-old died in Kitchener recently. We've had young teenager death in Ottawa. Unsuspecting folks thinking they're going to have a good time one night by purchasing an ecstasy pill and uh, they're dead within minutes. If we can save one life through this, why would we not move forward with it? Uh, What do you think your chances of success are? I mean, uh, how can you argue with what you're saying here? Uh, I mean, you do agree that it is a shot in the dark. There isn't, uh, you know, this is a multifaceted problem. That's for sure. This isn't isn't the silver bullet by any means. But at the end of the day, how can you... Is there any is there any real business financial or 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 sense to to let people have these? I mean, is there anybody or is there any industry we're curbing here other than the little dr- illegal drug industry by taking these things off the street? No, look, if you're making ginseng pills in your house or your naturopath, uh, you know you're not our target here. The target is drug dealers, organized crime that are. Uh, you know, operating these uh, sophisticated manufacturing, um, you know, uh, houses that are turning out uh, pills because there's a massive market. Again, you look at, um, you know, a, a kilogram or a, a kilo of fentanyl costs about 12500 bucks, And that's enough to make about a million tablets. And they go for between 20 and 80 bucks. So just do the math on that. Wow. That's why they're doing what they're doing because it is immensely profitable. I don't know where this will go. Look, it's a pretty simple, easy uh, fix. We can add this law, give law enforcement the tools, at least so that it's on the books if they suspect and know that there's a pill press or a you know, uh, pill manufacturing operation happening. You know, it's tough to get them on trafficking charges and all sorts, but this is a slam dunk. If there's a pill press in your possession, we can access a warrant, lay a charge, and you're going to go to jail for six months. Uh, that's a firm thing. And so why would you not move forward with this? Michael Harris has been with us, MPP Kitchener Conestoga. Uh, let's bring in Leela Attar. She is a 19-year-old opioid awareness advocate, suffered a near-death experience over uh, a fentanyl-laced uh, uh, drug that she thought was something else and uh, has lived to tell the story and now is an awareness advocate. Uh, Leela is with us now. Leela, thanks for taking the time to join us. Tell us your story. What happened here? 
Yeah, so um, basically I started with using, uh, I mean, like it started with marijuana and whatnot when I was about 16 years old, uh, just dealing with life and kind of self-medicating to escape that. And that progressed onwards to uh, like MDMA and amphetamines and party drugs and then to binge drinking and then to opioids when I was introduced by a coworker in the restaurant industry. So that happened for about three years in pretty much complete isolation until uh, November of 2016 when I was buying off of a colleague and a friend. And what I thought was I was buying was Percocets, but um, went home and I took a couple one night and I just, I honestly don't remember what happened after that, but um, I was awoken by this like pounding at the door a few hours later. And it turned out to be my best friend who thought that like I was dead or something was very, very wrong. And um, Were you living on your own? You're living on your own at this point? Yeah, I've Mm -hmm. been living on my own for three years, yeah. So I um, went to, the, like, just waking up from the state, like, it was going on for a while, and just, like, trying to find my feet, and I couldn't move them properly, and trying to breathe, and, you like, your lungs are heavy, and your chest feels weird. So something was very wrong. Um, but I did end up, like, I got to the door, and I said, like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I just drank too much. Go home. And then I got violently sick after. So after using for three years, you know when something is right and when something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I knew that there was something wrong with what I had taken, Um So for the days that followed that, I basically tried to get myself better. Like, I didn't get medical help or anything like that. So it was about a week of just, like, being violently sick, being unable to move, unable to eat, whatever. And then by the time I actually was able to go back to work and I approached the guy and I said, like, hey, man, like, what was that? Like, was it it laced? And he said, yeah. I said, well, was it fentanyl? And he just looked at me and he shrugged his shoulders in this cowardly way and just said, yeah, sorry. So that was it. That was when I realized, uh, like, he knew and... uh, My life was worth about $60 to him, and that was kind of the point where I decided, like, I had to change my ways or I was going to end up being another statistic, and uh, so I did. Wow. Uh, (laughs) That's an incredible story. Uh, How much were you paying for this stuff? Uh, It really varied. I think that night I probably paid about 60 60 to 80 bucks probably for, like, a couple pills, but, I mean, it really varied depending on the guy and depending on what he had. Right. um, At that point, I was so addicted that you could basically have charged me anything and I probably would have paid for it. How long did it take for for you to become so addicted? Well, I mean, it was it was in the work in progress for about three years. Like I started with them when I was 16 and then it kind of I would use it and then I'd like stop for a little bit and I'd wait for a week and then I'd use again. So uh, I'd say it was growing for a couple of years. But then by um, I'd say summer of 2016, it was pretty evident to me that I like I needed them. Like I would go to work and I'd take a bunch of them to do that. And I just it was nonstop all the time. So, um, uh, uh, where, when, when you had taken these pills pri- previously, had they had any of them been laced with anything? You'd never had this experience before. No, I had never had this experience, and I mean, like, realistically, it's possible they could have been laced. But what I not, or I could have been taking not what I thought I was, but I had never had such an extreme, violently ill like response as I had with those pills. So that was why. I mean, it was enough to kind of scare me the other direction. You could say, like, it right. was. So uh, why could you not get off opioids sooner? Uh, I would say, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the way with opioids, the way they adri- like attack the brain is that it's a physiological addiction. It's no longer just a psychological craving. Right. So with cocaine, for example, like I might stop it and I could want, but I might crave it. But it's not like I'm not going to sweat and get sick just because I don't have it for 12 hours. Different with opioids. So with that, it's not only do I want it and I feel like I can't handle it and I'm anxious and I'm sweating, whatever, but it's like you physically will get sick without them. Right. So that's why it's so hard to quit them. Um, 
So yeah. you, you would say said at the beginning you'd take for a week and then you'd stop for a week. And what happened during that week that you stopped? Why wouldn't you go back and take them sooner, I guess is my question. If they're that addictive, why did you wait the week the first time? The, well, I was so sick after the overdose that I just, I like, physically, like, could not. I couldn't even eat. I couldn't. No, but I mean coffee. when you had done it prior to the overdose. When I had done it, yeah, when I had done it prior, it was like I had I would be using for like a long, like so I'd, I'd be using for a few months and I'd say, okay, okay, I have a problem, I got to get myself better. So I'd wait a couple days and I'd try my best and then I'd just slip. I'd say I can't handle it anymore. Yeah. So I don't think there was enough of an incentive to be like, okay, this needs to stop, like you are going to die. But then around November, what, like I started hearing about fentanyl in the news and you hear about kids dying. But you're ignorant. I'm ignorant. I was 19, and I was like, well, no, that would never happen to me. I mean, this guy's my friend. He would never do that. Mm. So you just you don't think it would happen to you, but then when it happens to you and you're kind of smacked in the face with it, it's like, okay, this is real. Like, I, I am going to lose my life, and I, I don't know. I wasn't prepared to do that. Do you still talk to that friend? No, Who no, not you? at all. No, I actually, uh, I left the restaurant industry after that when I was in the process of getting myself sober and in my recovery. It's just it's not a healthy place for me to be, and he definitely is... Uh, not considered a friend anymore for sure so how old are you now if you don't mind me asking i'm 19 so wow wow you've lived a lot <laughs> in the last three years um yeah so at the beginning you said you did this to self-medicate to escape what can you tell us about that yeah so um i mean i think with a lot of people who have addictions it comes down to you're escaping from some kind of a pain or mental illness or something that's going on in your life that you can't cope with so for me, when I was about 16 or 15, 16, I started getting bullied really badly in high school. So uh, just dealing with like nonstop threats and like taunts and mocking all the time and bouncing around from one high school to another, um, it was a lot to deal with. And then I ended up uh, being kicked out of the house when I was 16 as well. So that added a whole new set of stresses. And uh, yeah, so then just the pain keeps piling on and all of a sudden you just realize that you need something to feel normal and to feel like you can cope with your everyday life. So. Yeah. Wow, you sound incredibly together now. Like, this would have never <laughs> happened to you. Yeah, no, I know. Well, I mean, 10 months uh, does wonders for you when you actually get the psychological help you need and address all the problems you were desperately trying to run from. But now I'm very, I mean, I've told my story so many times, and I think there's power in it. So I think I'm very much at peace with what's happened. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I want to go back to that. What is it like for you to tell the story that you just told to me? What is that um, like I mean, for you? I, I think I've I've gotten used to it, to be honest, like the first couple of times and I'd see it in the papers and stuff. And it's like you feel pretty naked, like it's a vulnerability yeah. thing. Sure. But um, at this point, I guess I've talked about it. And I, I think that just having connections with people. So, I, I mean, when I traveled across Canada, I spoke with parents who lost their children to opioids. And I think just them having a connection with somebody like that and then them saying that the story can give you hope because you know that people are able to recover and life does get better. So I think it, it for me, it's uh, it's empowering in that sense now. But... Yeah. What about your relationship with your family? Uh, it's been getting better, actually. Like, I uh, I started rebuilding stuff with my mom and whatnot, so uh, it's slowly but surely, but uh, yeah. A work in progress. Exactly, yeah. That's a good way to put it. So, uh, Leela, what, like, it's an incredible story, and you just sound so together now. What What's the future? Where do you want to take this? How, what, do you, what do you accredit this success to? Because so many people try this and fail, and lots die. How, how do you, how, what do you attribute this success to? The fact that you, you, the, the experience with your friend at the restaurant? Yeah. Um, I would say that um, the, the overdose was one part of it because it, like, it woke me up. But I think that the, in terms of being able to have a sustainable recovery and being, still being able to continue on and being abstinent from everything, 
I, I think I credit that a lot to just the psycho, like psychological stuff that I had to deal with. So, mm. I mean, it wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to pretend it never happened. Like, I actually went through with, like, you know, a therapist, and you deal with everything you were trying to bury for so long. So I'd say that, and then just focusing on, like, the positive stuff and cutting out all the negativity. So I cut out every single person in my life that was an alcoholic and that was using around me, and I just filled it with, like, full-time school and, like, working out and yoga and all those healthy things, and then uh, just complete lifestyle change, I'd say. Wow. So what's the future for you? Uh, For me, I don't know. It's constantly changing, I'd say, but um, right now it's looking like a lot of advocacy and public speaking and... uh, just really trying to figure out where my experience and my skills can kind of be of best help in this crisis right now. And, uh, yeah, for education will be next year once I kind of narrow in on what mm. that'll be. But, uh, yeah, honestly, just looking, trying to help as much as possible. Good for you. Go get them. Man, <laughs> you should be extremely proud of how far you, you have so come. Much. Good for you, Leela. Leela Attar, 19-year-old opioid awareness advocate, suffered a near-death experience uh, over a drug laced with fentanyl and now is lived and is sharing her experience to help others. Good for you, Leela. Congratulations. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It was assumed that when the U.S. pulled out of uh, the TPP, the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, last January, the bill would pretty much fizzle out. Uh, But instead, it's been quietly resurrected by 11 other countries, including Canada. Would Canada far better uh, in the deal with the USA in or out? Uh, And as well, where does uh, U.K. coming in and out of uh, the European Union, how does that affect CETA? Uh, a separate deal between, of course, Canada and uh, the UK. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, on the line now. Marvin, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, perhaps we should start with you explaining both of these. Do you want to start with? Do you want to start <laughs> well, with I was, CETA? I was actually going to start somewhere else and say it was, I'm glad to join you today, but I'd prefer to join you tomorrow when you're on that patio broadcasting. <laughs> Sounds like that would be a lot more fun. Absolutely, let's do that. Uh, well, we'll have. Both. So let's, both. let's start with CETA. So CETA, I'm not even going to tell you what all those letters stand for, but the way to think of it is CETA equals a free trade deal that Canada signed with the European Union. Uh, we signed it a little over a year ago. It has been ratified by the European Union and has uh, been ratified by four European countries. Three more are in the process. Eventually, 28 of them have to ratify that deal. Uh, I say 28, European Union at the moment is 29 countries, the 29th is Britain. Since Britain is supposed to be uh, extricating itself from the European Union, they aren't going to bother uh, approving CETA because by the time they did it, they may be out for all we know. Uh, TPP, on the other hand, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was a deal between 12 countries. Uh, We'll think of them mostly in the Pacific Rim. Australia and New Zealand, who aren't members of any free trade agreement. Japan, the third largest economy in the world, not a member of a free trade agreement. Yes, Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and then some Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam. The prize in TPP, at least in my way of thinking, was Japan. Yes, TPP was supposed to replace NAFTA, be the update for NAFTA, but we're negotiating that now separately since the United States removed itself. But the real prize was Japan, the third largest economy in the world, not part of any free trade agreement. So when Donald Trump announced uh, last week in January or the first week in February that, well, we're not going to ratify this, that effectively killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, The reason was that for it to come into effect, it had to be ratified by nations 
representing at least 66% of the trade of those nations. So you could have, if you will, you could have 10 of them say yes, but if Japan or the United States didn't join, it was going to be dead in the water. The United States said, not going to happen. It seemed to be dead in the water. As you pointed out, the surprise has been that the 11 nations, the original 12 minus the United States, said, well, wait a minute, we put five years into this. We sent people all over the world negotiating this. We're still happy with this. Why don't we just dust it all off and wherever it says 12, make it 11, wherever it says the United States, strike it out. Uh, And it seems like there's a bit of a head of steam behind this to the point that there is to be uh, a meeting of APEC, that's the Association of Pacific Exporting Countries. That happens annually, and this year is going to be held in Vietnam. I believe it's in late October or early November. And conceivably, at that meeting, either just before it or just after it, these 11 countries will come together and sign TPP-11. So... Uh... Did did the United States think that by withdrawing from this that it would be dead? How do they feel now if this is going to continue on and they're left out? Mm-hmm. So let's let's let me try to be as clear as I can be on this. This was not a United States decision. It was not a United States Senate or House of Representatives. It was a Donald Trump decision. Right. Donald Trump had been in office at that point all of about ten days. Uh, he had campaigned against Trans-Pacific Partnership, and he said, you see, I'm keeping my word, I'm pulling this out. And he wasn't thinking about any consequences, anything else. I am sure in Donald Trump's world, if the United States doesn't back something, it's not worth having. It's kind of like, if the Trump brand isn't on your vodka, then you shouldn't be drinking it. Uh, I'm sure that's in his world. The rest of the world, uh, though, said, well, wait a minute, we, we still think this is a pretty darn good deal. And look at Japan. Now, Things have gotten better for Japan, but really that was a country that had been, for the better part of almost two decades, stuck in a recession. It has only been in the last, let's say, two, two and a half years that Japan has started to crawl their way out. Some of this is self-imposed, but some of this was accidents, you know, the the Fukushima nuclear power plant, what have you. So they, they need something to get out, and frankly, we're interested because very little of what Japan consumes is made in Japan. Think of foodstuffs. They don't. They're islands. They have virtually no space to grow very much food. Most would find that astounding because everybody would think that everything that we consume here is from there or China. Well, maybe in terms of a manufactured yeah. goods, but if we think of just the basics, they they can't. They, yeah. they don't have place to have herds of cattle or yeah. or sheep or or pigs or whatever it happens to be. And today, Canadian beef imported into Japan. There's a fifty percent five zero fifty percent duty on it. Hey, if the United States doesn't want to play ball and we can get a beachhead established for Canadian beef, if there's a change in the presidency and some new guy comes along or a new woman comes along and says, let us into the Japanese market, at that point, it'll be the Canadian companies that have the high ground. In fact, within the Trans-Pacific Partnership, if we now got the United States out of it, Japan then is the number one most important economy in that room. You know what the number two economy is? Canada. We're the second biggest of those so, 11 nations. So, Marvin, at what time, at what point does somebody, one of uh, Trump's uh, advisors, say, you know, what's happened here is the rest of these countries now have a jump on this, and we've, you know, the party, just because you're the biggest person at the party and decide not to go, that doesn't mean the party's off. The party's continuing without us, and now we're losing out. Does, does that wash at all, I mean, sooner or later with Trump? <laughs> well, I don't know. Let me use the other example, CETA. 
we have a free trade agreement with Europe. Now, it bogged down a bit last year, and as it bogged down, both Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland said, folks, this is Canada. You like us. You want to do business with us. We're not the United States. You would also think those same advisors, if they're saying to Trump, hey, TPP is a great thing, they'd be saying, boy, we're missing the ball by not having a free trade deal with the European Union. But remember, in Donald Trump's world, it's America first. America first. He, he really isn't worried about the rest of this, and I'm sure in his world, if it doesn't have the Made in America stamp on, it's not worth having. So we have this window of opportunity at the moment. It may only last until the next uh, federal election in the United States when maybe somebody will defeat Donald Trump, but at least for four years... We've got the high ground now, and, and Justin Trudeau, and I know many people don't care for Justin on some levels, but he is taking great advantage of this to position Canada as the trading nation, that we are open for business and we'll talk to anybody. In fact, just, and I'll give this back to you in a second, Scott, one nation that called our bluff on this, we weren't expecting this, has been China. The second largest economy in the world said, well, Justin, uh, well, why don't we have a free trade agreement? Now, that caught us by surprise. Uh, it's not that we don't want to trade with China. We do. But there are certain, shall we say, problems in the, in the Chinese economy, like, for instance, recognizing intellectual property rights. Mm. Before we go down the road and start opening the doors to free trade, we've got to sort out some of those. But to me, it's a wonderful compliment to Canada that the second largest economy in the world, they're not talking free trade with the United States talking about free trade with Canada. Uh, we remember what it was like when, when uh, NAFTA and such was signed way back when. Uh, there was a lot of confusion, not, people not sure whether these were good or bad. Yep. Are, these, are these trade deals the future? Is this the way it has to go in a global economy? So I'm going to give you two answers to that, Scott. And, and my first answer, I'm going to break a little news for you here. Uh, you are going to discover, it's probably now online, that the nice folks at Ipsode Reads has uh, just completed a three-country study of free trade agreements, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. It's not a technical study. It was a survey of just consumers on the street to see how people feel about this. Uh, and, and there's no doubt about it that uh, there is a chunk of society, it runs about 20%, who feel that free trade agreements are bad. And they would point to NAFTA and say, look at all the stuff that we've lost. I would tell them that we didn't lose it because of NAFTA. It's happened at the same time, but we lost it due to automation. Uh, everyone has this idea that all these jobs took off and went to Mexico or the southern United States. And while there are a few jobs that leaked out that way, the biggest reason we don't employ as many people in manufacturing as we did 25 years ago is thanks to technology. Um, also interesting in that study, more than half of the people in Canada and in Mexico and even in the United States think that free trade, at least between those three nations, is a good thing. Now, you're going to be seeing those the story about this tonight on the news and in tomorrow's paper. This is just data that's come out. I would also say to you that I think this is the way of the world. If we if we can kind of embrace a United Nations approach to the world, meaning that we realize that we're all stewards of this planet, we have to work together, and there are also some issues like poverty that we all need to work together on. Free trade and freer trade are all part and parcel of that United Nations view. You will remember again, though, that Donald Trump was the United Nations this week, and he again said, right, to 186 nations, you know, I'm putting America first, and you should put your countries first. If you take that attitude, we are not good stewards of the planet. So there is a chunk of people, around 20%, who agree with Donald, but 
most people say, look, we are an interconnected world and we get more interconnected every day. We then need to start thinking about these multinational agreements to be better stewards of the planet. So the U.S. backing out of this could be Canada's gain in the end. Absolutely. It positions us brilliantly on the world stage. I know the jokers like to talk about Justin's colored socks as positioning us on the world stage, but it really is this attitude towards trade that really makes us the breath of fresh air in the room. Well, socks support a good foundation, don't they? They do. Uh, anyway, uh, getting back to the CETA deal, this is yep. a short-term deal, obviously, because the UK is on its way out of the European Union. Right. Where does, and obviously uh, Prime Minister May is over or was uh, meeting with uh, Justin Trudeau right. uh, as part of the whole UN thing. What is she trying to do? What is her game plan how is she trying to balance between us and of course uh themselves and the eu yeah so let me come at that a couple of ways uh theresa may was in ottawa just last weekend uh has turned turned out to be a wonderful ally in our shall we say problems about bombardier and boeing she's supporting bombardier on this because bombardier is the largest employer in northern ireland five thousand people they make the wings for the planes that bombardier produces so she is saying this is uh, this is just silliness. And when she was in Ottawa last weekend, talked to Justin about a number of things, but one of them was free trade. Uh, and her feeling was that CETA was done with Britain at the table. Now, Britain's not at the table now in ratifying it, but Britain was at the table during the negotiations. She doesn't think there's anything in CETA that they they would be upset about, so she is proposing fast-tracking a free trade agreement with Canada. Also, in public opinion polls in uh, in the U.K., when they are asking people on the street who should Britain have a free trade agreement with, Canada is the first country mentioned. Australia, by the way, number two, shows you how the Commonwealth still uh, feeds into the thinking about all of this. So I think there's both public sentiment for it and a fairly easy way to do this. The only downside is, if I was to look at Theresa May, May's you know, to-do list, the top five items is probably not free trade with Canada. Brexit is going to consume an awful lot of time, because remember, they, they pulled the trigger on this. It's supposed to happen within something like two years. That's an awful lot of work to do in a very short period of time. But if if we can use that framework, just again, strike out European Union, insert Great Britain, uh, we could see something like this happen within the next year. It's funny, this is what these free, deal, uh, free trade drill deals were supposed to do, was replace all of these other outside deals that you had to do in the process, which is now exactly what, we're, what Theresa May is doing. Exactly, and, and I think there's a lot of goodwill right now between Canada and the United States, again, if the United States is deciding to put up walls, and I'll, I'll just use that term figuratively, not literally, but figuratively, walls to trade, people realize that the North American market is still very important on the world stage. So Canada could very well fill a role of, well, let's get your goods to Canada, and then through whatever deal we have with the United States, we'll get your goods into the States that way, rather than dealing directly with the States. This also is how Mexico's economy has improved in the last 23 years. Mexico did not just sign a North American free trade trade deal. Mexico signed a trade deal with two different groups of South American and Caribbean countries. Those countries were able to get their products into North America using Mexico as a way station. This has also helped improve their economy. We can now do this for the rest of the world, especially if the United States is putting up these trade walls. All right, Marvin, I can't let you go without getting your thoughts on that speech to the U.N. from uh, President Trump. Uh, he, as you mentioned, he, he was certainly was preaching America first. Uh, 
and and something I found fascinating was, you know, you have to look after your people first before you start to take over others. Yeah, uh, I forget exactly what his terms were, but it's something to that effect. What What are your thoughts on, on this? And speech? then he went on to say that uh, the United States, we're we're nice people. We're not about to tell you how to run your country. We're not going to stick your nose into your business. Of course, North Korea, if you don't play ball, I'm going to blom you out of existence. And you think, wait a minute, you just said you weren't going to stick your nose into things, and now you're sticking your nose into North Korea. I found the speech confusing. I found it, uh, it sort of bounced from one extreme to another. He delivered it well, but he also delivered it uh, the way you might, uh, you know, the way I might read something in another language. I might deliver it well, but I didn't know if he really fully embraced all those different words that he was saying. Uh, I'm sure the people sitting there in the audience thought to themselves they had never seen an American president in the history of the United Nations. Now, remember, that's 1948, but in those years, they've never seen an American president give a speech like that. We saw the Israelis say, good, yay, good for you. Whether, <laughs> whether <laughs> there's anything longer in there, I-, I honestly don't know. And I would think most diplomats sort of nodded, smiled, and and just then went back to business as usual. I think most people are just going to wait this guy out. Uh, what about the use of the term rocket man? Well, I, I think I'm going to stop calling Donald Trump President Trump or Donald or Mr. Trump, and I'm just going to call him Motormouth from now on. Hmm. And uh, let's see how that goes. Uh, you know, this, this is a technique he used during the campaign. Yeah. It's uh, Lion Ted, it's Crooked Hillary, it's Little Marco, and it worked very well for him in the United States. I think on the world stage to start having these kinds of nicknames for world leaders, even leaders who you oppose and even leaders who may be quite dangerous, I think it's very, very bad thing, a very bad precedent. And as I say, turn it around. If, the, if somebody like uh, Kim Jong-il were to go to the United Nations and just call him Motormouth, how would he react to it? I, I think this is just a very bad thing. Something, again, I've never seen a president do before. Give people some respect. He's chosen not to do that. Marvin Ryder has been with his business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. I'll see you on the patio tomorrow. You take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. If you don't know how much pot is worth, we're about to tell you. It's about $10 a gram. At least that's what the government thinks. However, uh, I don't know how you come up with this information. But I guess analysis released last fall by the Parliamentary Budget Officer says that the average price of weed in Ontario is eight sixty four, And I guess that's on the black market. I wonder who the staffer is that has to find out that information. Or maybe it's a case of just asking around the office. So uh, obviously what has happened now is the Ontario government is looking at uh, coming up with some sort of retail price for this uh, in the range of $10 a gram. Is that going to be enough to get rid of the black market, which is supposed to be the whole reason for legalizing this? Let's bring in again Dan Malik, health sciences professor at Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking and Post-Prohibition Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. What are your thoughts of this price of $10 a gram? Uh, When that news came out, I had been speaking to someone who is very uh, well versed in the business, and he had already given me the price of $10. Uh, dollars a gram as likely what's going to happen. So when this came out, it seemed to me, I just kind of nodded and said, okay. And then I didn't realize it was going to make so much news. Um, but, but it seems what, what, what my colleague told me was that 
$10 a gram, it would definitely be around the price that they'd be getting it from um, either, like a person would be getting it from a dispensary or from a um, from a licensed producers for medical marijuana. Right. But that if you went to someone, say, quote, on the street, right, like a, a, a dealer mm-hmm. that you would deal with on the street, it would be less. So, so that just as a blanket statement suggested that this price was in line. But then the more I looked into this, the more, you know, we have to think about different strains have different quality, different, you know, different quality of flavors and of the, the high people get and of kind of the, the, the burning in their mouth or all of those other things that matter to uh, someone who smokes cannabis. And 10 is on the high end for, quali- for, for a higher quality product. But if you set it at just one price for all the cannabis you're going to be selling, it's, a, it's kind of a weird economic decision to do that because if you go into a liquor store or any yeah. store except gas, it seems to be kind of uniformity there, um, you're going to get a range of prices for a range of quality products. Well, you do that with, even with gas, right? Different right. blends. Mm-hmm. So 10 is, it, it seems to me that they were kind of throwing this number out to get a sense of what people would react to it. But what they've also said is that they're trying to make something that's uh, kind of a standard price across the country. Um, how can I you guess, do? How can you yeah. do that, Dan? When you know you talked, you yeah. talked about in the liquor store different types of alcohol, different yeah. brands, different prices. Mm-hmm. But you know, o- over and above across the country, it's even yeah. more different in the way we distribute it, in the way we price it. So, how are you going to yeah. possibly get one price for this product, and yet you're not for alcohol or beer or wine? Yeah, it does seem that they're being a little overly cautious, probably because of the nature of the product, right? And the the, the the it's illegality for decades, right? Um, so that they're trying to do a little more control than they probably need to, and then probably would be pragmatic given the the point of all of this, which is to undercut the illegal product or illegal sale, right? So, so by saying we're going to have the same price as Newfoundland or as BC, kind of doesn't make a lot of sense given that the market is different. And if you look at prices across the country, the budget office did a good study, but a few years earlier, public, actually just this past year, Public Safety Canada did this really comprehensive study of pricing. And the further uh, a province is away from production, the more it costs. So Newfoundland prices are higher than in BC, not surprising, right, because of the transportation. Mm. But interestingly, at the same time, in Newfoundland, I guess over time, the product um, decreases in its its value in, in its um, potency or value or flavor or whatever you're looking for. So the product they're getting in Newfoundland might not be as good as what you might get in BC or wherever you are close to producers. So here in Ontario as well. And where does this leave people who cross border shop between provinces? I mean, we had this. We we talked about this with a guy that was buying beer in New Brunswick yeah. for Quebec yeah. and back and forth and such. I mean, you're gonna well, Ottawa and Gatineau. You're gonna get the same thing. People are just gonna yeah, be going from one to the other. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the main thing. So so when the minister was saying, you know, we want to have universe, uh, uniformity across the provinces, really, and you and I have talked about this before, the main province they need to be concerned with is uh, Ontario, Quebec, because of the number of people on the border, right, that can cross easily across, you know, to, to you know, if you go between Manitoba and Ontario, you don't have nearly the kind of population right at the border, um, same with, say, B.C. and Alberta. Um, but but cannabis is lighter and it's easier to mail. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. So if you have a friend in, say, Quebec, and it's a lot cheaper in Quebec than in Ontario, and you live in, say, Windsor, you can just get them to mail it to you. You know, so there could be that concern they're dealing with. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, but it, it does strike me as something that's a little, they're being a little more cautious than they probably need to be, given the nature of the market. You can't have something that's so rigidly controlled that people just throw up their hands and go, you know, I know where I can get it cheaper. Well, again, you know, you're talking about uh, Ontario, which no storefronts and uh, it's all being distributed through the LCBO. Then you go Mm -hmm. to a place like BC where it looks like storefronts are going to be the way to go. How are you going to possibly keep the price consistent? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, you can do that simply by saying this is the price, but that doesn't, it just, there's, I can't think of a historical example of this happening. Even after Prohibition, there was flexibility in pricing. There was taxation and all of that stuff, but it wasn't. How would they have second. done? How would they have done it after Prohibition? Because they would have been. It would have been the same problem, would it not? How did they? Uh, well, they just you know just different products. Yeah, it would have been, and they didn't do it after Prohibition. Is what I'm saying. They didn't imp- implement one price. They were happy to let a certain degree of. Um, flexibility, uh, you know, within the pricing for different products. So they just didn't say beer is this much money. You know, it depends on, you know, what beer you're buying. Yeah, there was a little more of that when they went to public drinking. So in in the hotel beverage rooms and that, there was kind of a standard, but I've never, I've studied that in depth, as you know, I've never seen an example of where they said it has to be, you know, 10 cents a glass or whatever. Um, There was a bit of, you know, each, the, the LCP actually, would, would write to um, hotel owners, beverage room owners, and say, you know, we think some people are complaining that your price is too high. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Now, what and, would and, be the uh, objective behind that? Because all of a sudden they're realizing they're generating tax revenue? No, the, the, uh, the other side of what the LCBO job was, and, and still is more now, was to make sure that the, the market, the legal market, is palatable for people. Right, is in the sense of people will go to it. So if you have an area where the only licensed beverage room ha- charges too much, people are going to more likely go to um, illegal sellers. Right, right. right, right. Um, it wasn't until the Second World War where there was a little more concern over like w- uh, price controls, and that was part of a wartime um, uh, pr- wartime productivity issue where um, the government actually cut back in the amount of beer people could have, and so. I think they may have instituted some kind of standardized or, or, or sort of range of prices that, that these things could, could cost. Will government be able to raise these prices like they do every budget on and so-called sin taxes on liquor? Because, again, you know, uh, you know, people do make wine, people do make beer, but, you know, they're going to go out and buy it. They're not going to produce it. Uh, marijuana yeah. certainly allows more of the production. It's easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and it's already there. Uh, so at the end of the day, um, uh, how how are they gonna? How I just don't understand how they're gonna control this. Yeah, it, there, yeah. So there's a few few questions in there. The first one around uh, sin taxes. I mean, they're going to have to be careful because if as they, long if, they, as if, they, if every budget they raise the sin tax yeah. on marijuana, that just defeats the purpose because yeah. it's well, easier yeah, to get it. Absolutely, and as long as um, there is a vibrant um, black market um, uh, for this, uh, this that will continue to be a problem, and that's one of the issues people are saying. The government's not going to be able to raise amazing amounts of revenue right off the bat. How do you think this will compare to the contraband cigarette 
uh, issue because they say they now say that one third of all butts uh, burned in yeah. Ontario is contraband. That's yeah, a well, huge the, the, the challenge with yeah the challenge with the contraband cigarette issue is that the contraband cigarettes are only contraband when uh, non-indigenous people buy them from indigenous people, right? right. Uh, in that sense, because there is a, a non-tax there's a tax exemption for indigenous people uh, and, and tobacco uh, in certain conditions. So if, if someone, you know, goes um, and buys from a, uh, an indigenous vendor, they're actually breaking the law, right? But, but that's hard to control and, and hard to manage. Um, it's not going to be the same thing, I don't think, uh, with cannabis. There's been no talk about exemptions for different groups of people, um, except for medical, right? Um, so, so there so won't that, be any exemptions for indigenous people in regard to I, marijuana. I don't. I haven't I heard haven't that heard either. Any, yeah, I haven't heard anything about that. Um, so, if boy, that would change. A, the, that would change the discussion if if, if they were, because that it, it, that changes it everything. It would, and I don't think that that's an issue right now. Although there have been some indigenous communities who have said, you know, uh, legal cannabis could open up a good productive area for them, which is absolutely fine. You know, you have communities who can grow the stuff well and it doesn't matter you know uh where they are or who they are if they if they can do this right but that's not not anything to do with say the the various uh, legislation and treaties and stuff like that that the canadian government has with different indigenous communities um and i think that's where the tobacco tax exemptions come from um but uh yeah so so we won't have that kind of um that legal system that can be exploited right, in the way that, uh, with cannabis, as long as the government can crack down on illegal vendors. I think they're going to have a challenge, though, because right now the plan is only to go to the licensed producers who are producing medical marijuana, bully for them. Like, they're really thrilled about this, but there are a lot of um, good producer, uh, producers of good product, my understanding is, that who will be cut out. And so... So it's going to be difficult to get rid of that market. I think they'd be better off <clears throat> bringing them into the fold as well, right? That, craft producers of beer, craft producers of cannabis, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. How do you do that, though, without, again, you know, isn't that a direct uh, route to a storefront or to an individual? I guess you could still do it through government right. agencies. That's what they yeah, do with absolutely. wine, right? You, yeah. just, you have licensed producers. You just yeah. license more producers. You cut right. Health Canada out of it and do a different licensing system. And then they are suppliers. It's like a farmer supplies the grocery stores, right? You know, it's the same kind of idea. Will P- Let me ask you this, Dan. Will people who already participate in this go the route of buying it from a store? I mean, they could because it's convenient. Yeah. But uh, will they go that route, or will this just open the door for those that haven't experienced it? I think it's going to be a bit of both. I mean, the, the hope with uh, what's, this is, this, is a, um, this kind of control of a... Uh, intoxicant is called disinterested management, where the government doesn't have an interest in profit, it has an interest in control, right? So the only way that can work is to make sure that the stores are in places where um, cannabis purchasers are, right? So if you've got a whole a cluster of stores in Hamilton or in Toronto or in, in Ottawa, and, and you put a big government store in the middle of that, that might draw the people there, because they're not breaking the law walking in the door, or they're not participating in law breaking. Um, but at the same time, uh, it has to be appealing to the um, the, the, the user. Uh, it's it's kind of difficult because we have all these um, sort of mystical images of the cannabis user that is completely un, 
this is not reflected in, in reality. It's a range of people who smoke cannabis, right? Do you think they um, really, the government really wants to control it, or do you think they just want a piece of the action? I think they want to control it, absolutely. I think that there, there's so much rhetoric around, there's so much of a law and order rhetoric around this, is that they, the, the, the whole impetus, as much as we, you know, yes, they, they will get a piece of the action, and this is historically what happens with liquor controls. The government is now the vendor that profits from the revenues, but to be able, I mean, they have, there's so much law and order language around, you know, kids and, and using around, they, they want to control it so much that it really is fitting into this classic um, um, disinterested management model. The dis- disinterested management model is not without profit, Yeah, but the profit isn't what people are rewarded for. Doing good business isn't the idea here. In other That's words, right. Yeah. Doing controlled business right. is the idea. Um, now, that said, governments that are in straightened circumstances certainly aren't going to aren't going to balk at money coming from cannabis revenues. But it's kind of a politically tricky thing to say, "Hey, look how much money we made from cannabis." Because yeah. people turn around and go, "Yeah, you're making money off of the sale of this sure. drug that causes intoxication, stuff like that." We don't see a lot of that kind of. You know, uh, Language, yeah. uh, celebrating the virtues of making money off booze either, because you get that same kind of, although booze doesn't have the same kind of stigma as cannabis. So uh, compare the rollout to cannabis now to mm-hmm. booze back in Prohibition. Is okay. it, is it the sa- is, is the process the same or is it different because, the, you know, people already have it? And, and, um, and the same thing with the consumer when it does get into effect. Uh, wow. <laughs> How long do you have? So, um, we, well, when, when, when Prohibition ended in Ontario in 1927, the government actually did roll it out in a few stores to start with. It, it did um, happen over several years. The each report, of, I was reading through them the other day again, each report um, was, uh, uh, it, you know, we've opened this number of stores, and, and, and it went from, I think, a couple dozen the first year, because um, it started in May of 2017, so the first report wasn't a full year, and then the second year it was several hundred and, and that sort of thing, right? So, so it was a gradual increase as well. It was they recognized that they were going to gradually cut down in illegal vending, um, but people flooded the stores. Like it, what, there was no question that that was where they were going to go. The one issue the government did have with taxation. Um, and I've been trying to find the, the, the taxation rates for provincial, like the provincial taxation rates, but the only thing they had every year, they reported on the huge proportion of money that they had to send to the federal government because of federal government uh, booze taxes, which was the, the way it reads is they're kind of dismayed that they have to send so much of this money to the federal government. And they do say things like, you know, municipalities and the provinces are bearing the brunt of the impact of sale. Right. Of alcohol. So let me um, ask you this, Dan: Is it easier to buy pot now illegally than it was to buy booze illegally uh, in the prohibition days before prohibition? I would, I would say yes, and I would say yes mainly because of the nature of the product, mm-hmm. which is. And I think that's where I think that's where the difficulty is going to be, Dan. Right yep. there. Absolutely. Yeah, you can still have some guy standing a block away from the cannabis store, the legal cannabis store, saying, you know. I know how much it is in there, and I can give it to you for less. The challenge is, do you, and I think this is what we will see over the next few months, we've already seen this, is the issue of quality and certainly the issue of the fentanyl um, uh, epidemic, really. The opioid epidemic will play into fears about yeah. 
unlicensed product. Can fentanyl from. end its way end up in marijuana? At, oh yeah, oh you can cut yeah. it with whatever you want. It would be it would be tougher because it's a different type of product. Right. And I can't imagine you would see a lot of that. I don't know if the stuff can be smoked, but the, that fear of adulterated product um, will, um, I, I'm, I'm certain, be part of the, um, the mm-hmm. language we will see in advertising. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, I'm sure this won't be the last discussion we're having on this. Have yourself a yeah, great day. You too. Cheers. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.